Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, regeneration, how your body puts itself back together and what we can do to help when it goes wrong. Plus, in the news, the tech set to change our lives in 2019. What are the perils of AI? And does a crossword a day keep dementia at bay? I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Rates of the skin cancer melanoma have climbed alarmingly in recent years, particularly among young people. Regrettably, medical therapies for the disease have not kept pace, and in some countries, melanoma is a top 10 cause of death from cancer. But more recently, cancer doctors like Massachusetts General Hospital's Howard Kaufman have begun to develop treatments that use a patient's own immune system to attack their disease. The immune system protects our body from foreign invaders such as bacteria and viruses, but it can also recognize damaged or injured cells. And so when a cell becomes a cancer cell, the immune system can tag it, and in some cases it can destroy it. The problem is that cancers carry inbuilt mechanisms to deflect the immune system so that they can grow unhindered. And so, to be successful, a therapy needs to somehow surmount this natural immune defence and persuade the immune system to regard the cancer as hostile. To make this happen, the Massachusetts team have developed a modified virus that can selectively grow in cancer cells. As well as destroying the tumour where it's injected, the growth of the virus also provokes the immune system to attack the cancer and subsequently to then patrol the rest of the body, ferreting out tumour that has spread elsewhere. So these viruses are what we call attenuated, meaning they're a little bit weaker, so they don't cause as many side effects as a normal virus would, would cause. Uh, this particular virus is a herpes virus, which normally would call, cause a cold sore, and the genes that cause some of the pathology are removed. And it has the added benefit that it seems to be able to replicate more efficiently in a cancer cell, and it's not able to replicate in a normal cell. And, and this is the basis by which oncolytic viruses are particularly well-suited to treat cancer. On their own, though, the viruses only trigger a successful response in about a quarter of patients. But what happens if the viral therapy is combined with other treatments that attack melanoma in different ways? One class of drugs already approved to do this are agents called immune checkpoint inhibitors. These block the ability of cancer cells to deflect the immune system, making it harder for tumour cells to hide. So the way I like to describe it to my patients is, is that if you get a viral infection, you need your immune system to eradicate the virus. But then you want to shut that immune system off because when you get a cold or the flu, the reason you feel miserable is largely because the immune system is being overactive. So uh, there are a set of molecules called checkpoints, and these turn the immune system off. And cancer, being the sneaky disease that it is, has learned how to use these checkpoints to turn the immune system off, and this allows the cancer to grow. So checkpoint inhibitors are a new set of drugs that block this kind of shutoff switch. And when you shut that down, the, the immune system stays active for a longer period of time. And this allows then the immune system to deal with the cancer. And the combination of the checkpoint inhibitor drug with the modified virus can greatly boost response rates. 
We combine the virus with checkpoint inhibitors, which are also approved to treat melanoma. And the early results of those clinical trials are showing tremendous promise where we're seeing almost a doubling, if not more, of the response rate without an increase in side effects. Which is great news, but it does still mean that a significant number of individuals nevertheless fail to make an effective immune response against their cancer. The same results are seen in experimental mice with melanoma. Part of the problem seems to be that the therapy itself triggers the cancer to increase its own production of other immune bypassing signals, including one called PDL1. The good news is that drugs exist to block that too, and when these are added to the mix, at least in mice, the results are very impressive. When we put the three drugs together, which hasn't been done before in humans, we actually saw almost 100% response in the, in the animals. And this suggests that the three-drug regimen might be a particularly effective way to, to treat patients, and all three of these drugs are already FDA-approved as single agents. And another important point that we saw in the studies was that because this was so effective, we were able to lower the dose of almost all of the agents. And so it suggests that we might not have to use as high of a dose, and that means we may not have to deal with as many side effects. Sounds like amazing news, doesn't it? That was Howard Kaufman. He's at the Massachusetts General Hospital. The paper that described that work has just come out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Now, as we're getting to the end of the year, let's take a look forward to what awaits us in 2019 in the world of tech. Peter Cowley is a tech expert and angel investor, and he joins us. Hi, Peter. Hello, Georgia. What what do we have to look forward to? What's the biggest tech coming our way in 2019? Well, first of all, the Consumer Electronics Show, which is beginning of January, is where the launches occur for the 2019. Uh, it's huge. It's been going about 50 years, 200,000 people turn up. The launches aren't yet public. They sort of come out the weekend beforehand. But the ones I've, that seem to be rumours about are the uh, four of them. One, a transparent TV. That means you can see the wallpaper through the TV, perhaps. I'm not quite sure why that is. <laughs> why would you want your TV to be I transparent? I have no clue. This is only a rumour. Uh, secondly, a foldable phone. Now, of course, that'll be presumably be a screen two sides. But if you go back, probably even before you were born, there was a foldable phone in the 80s from Motorola in 1989. Voice control and more devices. This will be more useful. The fact that I hardly ever use the TV in the lounge means that I have no clue what the buttons do on the remote control. So voice control actually makes sense to me. And finally, there's going to be a home brew kit for beer in the same way that you get coffee machines. So you could effectively put the ingredients in a capsule in and it would produce beer. Oh, right. Some of my housemates brew beer and it takes them a very long time and makes a massive mess. So how would this, how would tech Again, help it speed Again, I've seen a photograph, that's all. <laughs> Just add alcohol then. Do you, do you put the booze in as a I separate I don't think supply? so. I think it probably actually creates the alcohol as, as any beer kit would do. So. And when you say foldable phones, like I'm imagining a flip phone, but that's that's not... No, I think it'll be more than that. I think the LCD screens are becoming flexible more and more. In time, we'll have packaging on the side of our cola can which will actually have your own message on it it'll be a, it will sell hello peter drink me or something <laughs> don't <laughs> drink me Alison, I, I, Alison I, I contain thousands it? of calories and what, what about uh, out of the home what about traveling is there any big changes coming there well outside the home autonomous vehicles are moving on there's still a lot of societal and regulatory work that needs to be done before they become adopted we're constantly hearing that autonomous vehicles are sort of, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. But do you reckon 2019 will be? No, uh, it'll be going on in the background. There's a lot of work going on in terms of vision systems, etc. But we won't see. We'll see progress, but not that much. One thing I should point out, about 18 months ago, I was on the programme talking about taxis in Dubai. These are factory drones. They still haven't arrived yet. They've got hover bikes, though, because I was asked to comment on this recently. They're equipping the police with these things, which are basically a motorbike, with four fans, one on each, yeah, I've, two I've, on the front, two on the back. And it looks like a really good way to take someone's head off, actually. If you were to, I, to come in a little bit low, you've got these enormous, they're unenclosed fan blades yeah, I've whizzing around. the founder of that. If you come, fell off, you would mince yourself. <laughs> there are actually wankle engines in there, four wankle <laughs> engines, and well, they'll get adopted, I don't know. But he's been working on that project for many years. I'd like one of them for Christmas. They sound great. I wouldn't <laughs> be late like to you work You wouldn't want to fall, fall off, Georgia, I'm not kidding. Because <laughs> literally these massive blades going around thousands of yeah. revs a minute just mince you. Are there any sort of other fun toys you've got? Your uh, eye well, on I don't, yeah, I'm a very early adopter, as you're fully aware. But a couple of things I really would like would be some a pair of earphones that are Bluetooth that you can sleep on. You know that uh, will protect the ears, 
provide noise cancellation, but also you're not going to sort of be totally discomforted by them. So, so you can listen to the naked scientists when you're going to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you you, you to do sleep. know, Peter, this conference you're talking about, the tech conference, yes. you do know what gadget headlined there a couple of years ago, don't you? Uh, no, tell you me. You could put me. this on your, on your Christmas list. It was, um, was radiation-repelling boxer shorts. I hadn't heard yeah. that, but have you no, got some? No, no, I haven't actually, but I toyed with the idea that they've got this sort of silver thread in, in the material, and the idea is this meshwork of silver thread soaks up radiation your that, might be, phone in your pocket, yeah. that might yeah. be incident on your manhood. Yes. Yeah. And because it's silver, the antimicrobial effects of silver also oh, mean that you keep down the germ load in your boxer shorts as well, which can maybe help some Excellent. people. Good, thank you. Um, very briefly, okay. what about on a society level, Peter? Is there oh, anything there's huge amounts going on there. Um, for instance, it's said that three countries will ban autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles during the next year, but at the same time, some rubbish collection will start actually start to be autonomous. This duplex voice chatbots, that's a bit of a mouthful. I talked about that some months ago. This is Google Duplex, actually, where you're talking to a computer that's arming and erring and pausing and etc. There's got to be some work on that to, to stop uh, people being conned by that. Drone regulations, we know that's got to happen because we will have more and more drones and there's likely to be more and more accidents. And, of course, the big one, fake news. Something's got to happen about the way that media is distributed to us. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you us. very much indeed. Thank you. Now, here's a very quick update on our Naked Scientists fundraising campaign. We spend about £150,000 every year making the Naked Scientists, and we're asking you to help us to raise a third of that to keep the show on the road. Now, what's extraordinary is that we've raised nearly 20% of our total, but we've done that with the help of just 1% of you. Now, we know that some of you are of limited means and can't afford to help us, but we would like to appeal to those who can to consider what we do for you and what we give you as high-quality programming that we make with enormous love and effort and energy every week. Do please consider helping us by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate so we can afford to keep this show on the road and making great programmes for you in 2019. nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. Please consider giving us £10 for Christmas. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Georgia Mills. On the way, why country bumpkin frogs aren't as sexy as city rollers and are we getting everything wrong when we think about the dangers of AI? Before that, though, we're often counselled that we should use it or lose it, particularly when it comes to keeping your mind sharp when you get a bit older. There are sayings abounding like, a crossword a day keeps dementia at bay. But are they actually true? A new study out in the British Medical Journal says not. And with us is psychologist Duncan Assel. Now, he wasn't involved in this study directly, but he does work on similar research projects at Cambridge University, and he's been taking a look at the findings for us. Uh, Welcome to the programme, Duncan. So, first of all, who's done this study? It's been done by a group in Aberdeen, led by Roger Staff um, at the Institute of Medical Sciences um, with his colleagues. And what were they seeking to find out? Well, they recruited a group of 64-year-olds and then they followed those individuals over the next 15 years, seeing each person five times each within that time period. And each time they saw them, they measured different cognitive skills like short-term memory and attention skills. And they also conducted a questionnaire, which they called the Intellectual Engagement Questionnaire. It asked questions about, do you enjoy reading? Do you enjoy problem-solving crosswords? Are you curious? So, for instance, do you want to learn about new things like social media? And what they wanted to explore was how the relationship between these two different types of measures changes over that 15-year period. And does this give them the power, critically, to control for people who start off from a good point? Because if taking the idea that if I do lots of crosswords, this will defer dementia, if I'm starting from a higher point than another person, it may just be that I was always good at doing crosswords and I just keep doing crosswords and I have a low risk of dementia anyway versus someone who doesn't do many crosswords starts from a low point and the dementia is manifest more obviously sooner. So that's a very good question. So the perennial problem with studying cognitive ageing is that it takes a very long time to study it. And so you often end up um, studying people over relatively short periods of time. So 15 years sounds like a long time. But of course, in within the age span, that's that, even that's a relatively short period of time. But there's something very special about these individuals. And that's that all of them took part in a study in 1947, when they were all 11 years old. And as part of that study, they conducted a cognitive assessment. So they had this very good baseline of cognitive ability from many years before the study even started. 
what they initially hoped to see was that the trajectory of decline in the cognitive skills would be altered by the degree of intellectual engagement from the questionnaire. So those people who are more intellectually engaged might show a reduced decline in cognitive skills as they get older. But what they found actually wasn't that the responses on the questionnaire moderate the rate of decline. They just found that people who were more intellectually engaged had better cognitive skills overall, and, and everybody declines at roughly the same rate. Right. So the whole idea of use it or lose it is therefore, it's a myth. It's not going to work that way. It's not so much that it's a myth. It's, the myth part, I guess, is, is about the trajectory. So what this study and some other previous studies have shown is that essentially what predicts good cognitive health in older age is good cognitive health throughout the lifespan. Essentially, those people just start off further from some kind of functional threshold. So they have further to drop before they start experiencing cognitive difficulties. Does this mean then that uh, if you've reached old age and, and you've never been that, uh, well, the sharpest tool in the drawer, it's too late? Or are you saying, actually, you've got to make the most of what you have got? I think you probably have to make the most of what you have got. So it's very hard to demonstrate that doing crosswords and so on will cause you to have better cognitive health, but it certainly can't hurt. But we do know that there are lots of other factors that are very good predictors of cognitive health and older aging. So, for instance, having good cardiovascular health is a great predictor of having good cognitive health. So lead a healthy life from the get-go, and this will have the best likelihood of preserving your intellect into old age is yes. the bottom line, isn't it? Having good cognitive health in older age starts young. Duncan, thank you very much. That's Duncan Assel from the University of Cambridge. Thanks for taking a look at that, Duncan. Now, AI or artificial intelligence is rarely out of the news at the moment with all kinds of claims about how it will change the world, either by being a revolutionary technology making the world a better place or that a super smart computer is going to take over the world. But what really are the risks of AI? I caught up with AI entrepreneur Vivian Ming at the Royal Society's You and AI event in London. No one has invented a technology that thinks like we think, that understands the world. There is no AI that, given enough processing power, will have an opinion about Brexit or will prefer a coffee over tea. Nothing like that exists. And in fact, anyone who says they know when it's coming is essentially saying they can predict when a truly novel invention that no one yet has made will happen. So maybe it will be tomorrow. I doubt it. Maybe it'll be 20 years and maybe it will never happen. I, I don't think there's any theoretical reason to think we won't have very intelligent AI out there someday, but it's coming no time soon. And therefore, it's not a technology that can take over the world. I think what we're genuinely afraid of is people and what people will do with immensely powerful tools in their hands. AI can truly do some terrifying things, autonomous weapons, the use of artificial intelligence by autocracies to maintain power. Those are things we really need to worry about. When people want to use machine learning or AI for problem solving, where can that go wrong? I've been coming at artificial intelligence for a very long time from the perspective that I want to solve problems. The problem is the success of my work has come from a deep understanding of the problem. When I was the chief scientist of perhaps the very first company to ever use AI for hiring, the first thing I did was I read a 100 years, very literally, of research papers about what makes a great employee. Then we built AI to look for those qualities in people. By contrast, many notorious cases, most recently Amazon, built a very complicated deep neural network, and they threw it at the hiring history of Amazon. And guess what? We didn't want to hire women. It turns out that getting hired at Amazon tends to mean you're a man. And that happens a lot together. So the AI learned to associate the two things. That probably says something unpleasant about Amazon, but it also says something about the naivete of turning over some of the most challenging problems in human history. Who should get a loan? Who should they hire? How do we take bias out of the judiciary? Who even gets into our countries? All of these things put together are now being put in the hands of some very young people that have come out of university. And they've learned to do something incredibly challenging. They have learned how to build 
and tune the metaparameters and deep neural networks and architect these elaborate models. But in the end, all of artificial intelligence as it exists today is a tool. And that, I think, is one of the most immediate problems with artificial intelligence, thinking it will solve our problems for us, when in fact all it can ever do is reflect our own ethical choices back in our faces. Do you think it's going to make society a more or less fair place? So an interesting truth in my experience with almost all technology, not just artificial intelligence, is at least when it first comes out, it invariably helps the people that need the least help. Because people like me with very fancy degrees, living in elite places, we're the ones that can actually make use of it. This is true of the internet. This is true of educational technology. Turns out it's immensely true of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence increases inequality. We tend to make tools that make life a little easier. And it turns out that the people that are able to make the most use of it are the people that own large companies. And for them, making life a little easier is driving wages to zero. And when they look at what an AI can do, it can read a contract and find all the loopholes. It can take a spreadsheet and analyze all the risk in a financial investment. It can write code. So it can do all these expert judgments that have for up until this moment of time have been solely the domain of humanity. And it can increasingly do them cheaper, faster, and better than people can. And if you're the CFO of a Fortune 500 company, your first reaction to that is, why the hell are we paying for all these software developers and lawyers and financial analysts? I can't fire them all, but maybe I can replace them with people that never even went to university. And combining them with an AI, we can create something that is 80% as good as that very expensive college graduate we used to hire. We can do so much better than that. We can make a choice that actually draws people into the creative economy instead of what I call deprofessionalizing it. I hope we make those choices because 10 years from now, it will be too late to say, oh my goodness, that was a bad idea. Vivian Ming there. When looking for a partner, animals have to adapt to their surroundings, and the Tungura frog from Central America is no exception. New research from Vrai University has found that frogs living in cities have evolved to call more often and to make more complex sounds than their forest-dwelling counterparts. Adam Murphy has been hearing all about it from Wouter Harburg. They're much smaller than you would expect. They're about two centimetres big brown, brown, different brownish colors, and normally during the day they're very camouflaged on the forest floor, but when they start to call, it's a very impressive sound. They call very loud, they call in big groups, so they're hard to miss, and if you compare their call to us, they have the same fundamental frequency as our voice, and more or less the same amplitude as when we are yelling at each other. So they have a very impressive mating signal or a mating display you could say so they're tiny frogs screaming at our volume looking for a mate yeah they're tiny frogs and they, they really scream at the maximum capacity they also have a very big larynx a voice box very similar to what we have but in their case their voice box is much bigger than their brain and in humans it's the other way around it just shows you that sexual selection has operated on their voice and not on their brain um, what did you find then when you looked at these frogs? We compared frogs in 22 urban sites and forest sites. We recorded up to 100 males. And on average, we see that frogs in the city call at about 25% higher call rates and about 40% higher complexity. So what you should know that in this species, males can, they always make this first part of their call that we call the tune. It sounds like tune. And that's how they start, we call that the simple call. But then when they get really excited, they start to add elements known as chucks. And that sounds like ah or ah ah. And if you get tungara, that's why they're called tungara frogs. And when they do that, they make themselves more attractive to females. But we also know from previous studies that predatory bats and parasitic midge are also 
paying attention to these chucks and if you give them a choice they prefer to attack males that make more of these so-called chucks. That was the first thing we found. We found that these urban males make more of these chucks and then we thought okay that must be related to on the one hand attractiveness to females but also on the other hand related to predation risk. Can the city frogs, could you take them into the forest and they'd revert back to being rural frogs and vice versa? How would that work? Yeah, so that's also what we tried. So when we found out that there are these differences, we wanted to know, okay, so how flexible are urban or forest males in changing these calls? So we put an urban frog in a forest environment and then immediately saw that it would change back its call to match that of a forest frog. And that way it adjusted its calling behavior to match the predation risk in these forest environments. But when we did the other uh, experiment, when we moved forest frog to the urban environments, we saw that they could only partly change their calls and they could not make as much of these chucks. So they had less complex calls than the urban frogs in the same environment. And this suggests really that we are looking at an evolutionary response and that the urban males have been selected by the city for their increased complexity. So this is witnessing the start of natural selection onto evolution then? Yeah, this could potentially be the start of, of a new species as a result of changes in sexual and natural selection pressure, you're right. So the key question here, what we really want to find out, is whether these differences are heritable, whether this trait, this calling behavior is passed on from one generation to the other, and that's what we are planning to do next summer. So we are planning this large-scale breeding experiment where we keep forest frogs together and urban frogs and then see in the same kind of lab environment and then see if their offspring has the same differences in calling behaviour. That was Walter Havik speaking with Adam Murphy. And if you want to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing so far on the programme, the transcripts of the interviews and the references for the stories where it's relevant are on our website, nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. Now, our body is constantly making new cells and tissues to repair those damaged by ageing or an injury. Often, the repair process isn't perfect, though, and it leaves a scar. And most people who meet in the street will have at least one and a story to go with it. I suppose the longest scar is when I was chasing a friend or a friend was chasing me all around the house when I was quite young and he had a pencil in his hand and we collided and I still have the lead <laughs> underneath my skin. Only operation I've ever had, which was appendicitis, which almost killed me. But scar, one from the operation that saved my life, two, I have a smaller scar below it from where the surgeon accidentally dropped the scalpel during the operation. Oh, my God. In me, I just get it recently... So that's the when I start to love cats, and I own it, and I got my first scratch. And actually, I'm quite happy with it because I can still remember how I love my cats. Yeah, in front of my head here makes me look a bit like Harry Potter, I guess. <laughs> and I just walked against the doorframe <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> full speed, and then fell to the floor and was bleeding and everything. My mum was like, uh, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Chris, do you have any impressive scars? I, I do. I have a, a very unimpressive scratch on my hand, actually, from a cat, which might be part of the reason why I really can't stand the scumbags. <laughs> so don't get a cat if you like your skin to be intact. Well, it's very obvious when our skin scars, but the organs inside our bodies are no different. They can repair themselves and develop scars along the way. Over the next half hour, we're going to hear how the liver can regrow itself, what happens when the heart develops a scar, and hear about some exciting new research that could change the lives of stroke victims. But first, let's stick with the skin. Matt Hardman is with us. He's from the University of Hull, where he's trying to understand how damage gets repaired. Hi, Matt. Hi, Georgia. When I'm, I don't know, cutting my onions and um, accidentally cut my finger, as I do quite a lot, what actually happens? Well, like any biological process, it's actually quite complicated. So the first thing that happens is platelets in your blood clot together to form a clot. That stops you bleeding to death. 
then immune cells are recruited from your circulation to the site of injury and their job is to get rid of any debris or get rid of any bacteria that are in the wound that shouldn't be there and then stem cells become activated locally and they replace the cells that are missing in the void and the key thing is that void has to be filled with matrix so matrix is kind of like a biological polyfiller and the way that that is sculpted is what causes the scar is that kind of a scaffold across the hole in your finger exactly, trying to bridge exactly. the gap and what is that made of so it's made of all kinds of different components, essentially long proteins that bind together in a kind of a meshwork, and that meshwork is what restores the function of the tissue. The key thing is a scar is actually quite different to normal skin. Why is that? Why don't we get a lovely new fresh finger again? Why does it leave this scar? It's evolutionarily programmed, so we've developed over thousands of years to actually heal in a, in a dirty environment, so we have to heal rapidly and quickly and close that wound. But actually, these days, most injuries happen deliberately in operating theatres. And so that's a much cleaner environment. So you don't necessarily need to heal so quickly and with such a prominent scar. Right. So it's because we're, we're trying to heal so quickly that it's, it's like different from our usual skin. Yeah. And the, and the immune cells themselves actually drive the scarring process. So if you have a, a really exuberant immune response, that releases loads of factors which actually activate the scarring response. So why does the tissue look a different colour as well? So scars are completely different to normal skin. They lack hair follicles, they lack sweat glands, and they also tend to be less pigmented. But not all. it doesn't happen all the time, does it? We don't no. always scar. So why does it happen sometimes and not others? Essentially, the depth of the wound decides whether you're going to scar or not. If you have a very superficial wound, like a paper cut, that's not going to scar. If you have a full thickness wound all the way through the skin, then you're going to end up with a scar. And yet and the paper cut hurts more. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting that not everyone scars the same. And actually, the way you scar changes over your lifetime. How so? I'm sure everyone will realise that younger people tend to heal faster, but also with less scarring. But also, older people don't have such exuberant scarring, mainly because their immune response is dampened. So as you get older, your immune cells lose a lot of their ability. And that means that your wounds heal less quickly, but also with a better quality of scarring. That's really interesting. So it slows down and that means it doesn't scar so much. Could we trick younger people into doing that too to um, avoid scarring? Yeah, but the danger there is that then you'd move on to a wound that wouldn't heal. So it's a fine balance. You don't want to delay wound healing too much because then you could end up with uh, much more serious problems. I see you could get infected and then uh, you'll, exactly. you'll look great, but you'll be about to die. Yeah. <laughs> what about, um, you mentioned younger people don't scar so much. What about in the womb? Yeah, so that's really interesting. So actually, whereas most mammals do scar quite a lot, most mammals, when they're in the womb, don't scar. So there's, there are changes, biological changes, that occur at the point of birth that lead to scarring. And it's thought that it's, it's mainly the immune system. So when you're in the womb, you have a, a less developed immune system. And I've heard that some animals don't actually scar at all, like uh, fish. Is this true? And how are they doing it? Yep, so flies, worms, fish, even some lizards don't scar and they can actually even regenerate whole limbs. And the answer is we don't really know uh, why those less developed organisms are able to heal and regenerate, whereas, whereas humans aren't. That sounds really handy. I mean, being like a regular wolverine. I mean, could we find out what they're doing and then apply it to us, do you think? Yes, absolutely. And there are lots of groups around the world who are actually looking at understanding regenerative healing in, in less developed animals to be able to implement that. In, in humans. That sounds great. And uh, finally, this is something everyone who's ever had a, a scar will know. Why do they itch? So the nerves in your skin are actually stimulated by the cells that are healing a wound. So as they're moving around, as they're releasing chemicals, that stimulates your nerves. But actually, the nerves themselves are regenerating. So within the tissue, there are underdeveloped nerves, and they're sending out kind of scrambled signals to your brain, which are sensed as itch. Thanks very much, Matt. That's Matt Hardman from the University of Hull. So the skin is constantly regenerating to make more skin cells, but what about other organs inside us? Well, the liver is an incredible example of an organ that can regenerate when it's injured. In fact, it's so good that live liver donations are possible, and this is where a person gives away up to 80% of their liver to a new recipient, and they then regrow themselves a new one. Martin Balgen has personally experienced how well his own liver can regenerate. My adult son suffered from a complex and rare immune condition that progressed to end-stage liver failure just four years after diagnosis. A transplant was only chance for life. Despite being on the active transplant list, my son's condition was approaching critical and he may not have lived long enough given the shortage of suitable organs and patient priorities. I was carefully assessed 
both physically and psychologically before the transplant unit was given permission to transplant some of my liver into my son. I donated 61% of my liver. It was the most I could safely offer and the effect of my body and potential to save my son's life was measured. I was in surgery for six hours, followed by 24 hours in ICU and released from hospital after just 10 days. My liver regenerated to its near original mass and function within 12 weeks. My liver is a strange shape now and uncomfortable at times, but works. The living-related transplant did enough to save my son's life. Sadly, he needed a full transplant just three months later due to serious complications with the original disease. Six years later, he's living the life he so richly deserves. For me, live liver donation is a very important issue. Advancements in medical and surgical procedures make a living donation a very viable option in the right circumstances, and in my opinion, this option could be offered earlier rather than waiting for the patient to be so ill that it may be the only option left open to try. That was Martin Bowden there. So he regrew his whole liver in just 12 weeks. That's absolutely incredible. But why does the liver have this extraordinary regenerative capacity in the first place? Marie Chalhook is trying to find out at Cambridge University's Gurdon Institute. Because the liver has this property of detoxification. Every day it gets injured. The liver has evolved to have a very huge capacity to restore these cells back and restore their normal state of the liver. How does it do that? How does it grow back? That's very interesting. It's actually a very important question to address. We know that it does it, and it does it very well. The molecular mechanism, how the cells know they have to regrow, how the cells know they have to stop growing because the liver is regenerated, we know which factors are important, but we don't know all of them, and we don't know how they do it. There is a lot of investigation on that area. Obviously, we think that if we understand how the liver regenerates so well, we might be able to apply it to other organs and understand why the other organs cannot do it. What about when things go wrong in the liver? Things you hear about people damaging their liver with alcohol, for example. What happens there? Yeah, we get many patients that have what we call alcoholic liver disease. Their livers have been damaged because of drinking alcohol. And liver disease is actually one of the diseases that is increasing because despite you can injure the liver in a daily basis and it can regrow, it's not an infinite capacity. That means that at some point, for reasons that we still don't understand, it will stop regenerating. And when the tissue stops regenerating, it has only two options. Either it undergoes a scar, the function is lost and is replaced by cells that do not have this detoxifying function of the liver, or the other option is that actually it undergoes cancer because in regeneration, the mechanism is that the cells have to sense the damage and respond to the damage by proliferating in order to make a new pool of cells. If you have a lot of proliferating cells on that liver, you are susceptible to get mutations and therefore you're susceptible to get cancer. And alcohol has a huge influence on liver disease because it's a constant damage to the tissue. Marichelle Uck. So the daily insult of dealing with toxins in the bloodstream and needing to be able to rapidly replace damaged cells has led to evolution endowing our livers with this incredible regenerative capacity. But it doesn't work perfectly. And incessant damage from things like excess alcohol does eventually outstrip even the liver's impressive regenerative ability. Something to bear in mind over Christmas, perhaps. But not all organs, unfortunately, are as good as bouncing back. Sarah Miles, accompanied by her chatty pet bird, Pip Squawk, shared her story about what happens when the heart is injured. I was working as a nurse but became unwell and was diagnosed with diabetes and angina. My symptoms got worse and I was repeatedly told the cause was anxiety and depression. But I suffered a heart attack which led to a cardiac arrest. I was only 38 and the damage was severe. Most days, just washing and dressing is enough to exhaust me. I spend more hours asleep than I do awake. The whole body fatigue and breathlessness is overwhelming and I'm no longer able to sleep in my own bed as the stairs are just too much to manage. I've been referred for a transplant or possible LVAD, a mechanical heart, but my GP of over 20 years manages most of my care, which is an incredible support. The British Heart Foundation has been incredibly supportive too and I work voluntarily with them to raise awareness, which I think is very important, especially with the younger generation. I always felt I had a story to tell, an experience to share and a voice to be heard and they have given me that opportunity and now a purpose for which I will be forever grateful. 
Sarah Miles. Thank you, Sarah. So why can't the heart regenerate like the liver does? Well, with us is Stephen Pettit. He's from the Royal Papworth Hospital in Cambridgeshire. He's a cardiologist specialising in heart failure. Um, When a person has a heart attack, Stephen, what actually happens to the heart muscle? The medical term is myocardial infarction, um, occur when a coronary artery becomes blocked. Um, and, and this is normally recognised, one would hope, quite quickly. Uh, and great efforts are taken to sort of reopen the artery and restore blood flow to that part of the heart. Uh, but if that, hasn't, if that isn't done or if, or if that's not successful, then that part of the heart, unfortunately, becomes sort of irreversibly damaged by the heart attack. And that means you lose heart cells from that part of the organ. Yeah, absolutely. So heart muscle cells are not able to sort of divide and regenerate. Um, And the heart heals, but in healing, uh, scar is formed. And scar cannot contribute to the sort of contractile function of the heart. So the pumping function will go down. And scars can cause other problems in hearts as well. So you end up with with a stiff scar, which is presumably a compromise. I need to heal this damage up quickly. So I lay down a fibrous scar, which, which seals the breach in the heart, but you've lost the contractile part, the heart muscle. So as you say, the heart loses its pumping ability. And that's why patients like, like Sarah, whom we heard from, get heart failure. Their heart just can't produce enough effort to push enough blood fast enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to a certain extent, there are medications that can sort of mitigate against the sort of progression of heart failure. But absolutely, there is no way back at the moment from that process of scar formation in the heart. What can we do for people in that situation at the moment then? The mainstay of treatment for people who have developed heart failure is tablet treatment. Tablets can produce enormous improvements in how people feel and also led to a revolution in how long people survive with heart failure. But at the extreme end of the spectrum, um, when tablet treatment is not enough and despite that people are feeling awful and people's outlook is poor, then we turn to more extreme things such as heart replacement therapy. What sorts of things can you offer people? Well, there are all sorts of of options that are open now. So areas of scarred heart muscle are potential source of uh, rhythm disturbances, potentially life-threatening rhythm disturbances. So people with large areas of scarred heart muscle are sometimes offered implantable devices called defibrillators. Uh, They're a little bit like pacemakers, but they can act to automatically identify and treat uh, rhythm disturbances that would otherwise be fatal. At Papworth Hospital, we also undertake heart transplantation, which for many decades now has probably been the gold standard treatment for very advanced heart failure. Before someone reaches the stage of having a heart transplant, or perhaps even while they're waiting, is there anything apart from tablets you can offer that gets them slightly better function in the meantime and a better quality of life? Yeah, so for a proportion of people, we will turn to something called mechanical circulatory support. And that is using a mechanical pump to sort of maintain blood flow around the body while a person is is waiting for a heart transplant. And the type of pump that we use most often are called left ventricular assist devices or LVADs. And is that what you've got there in front of you? Yeah, absolutely. So this is an LVAD. There are three main bits to this. The pump... And the pump is implanted by one of our cardiac surgeons and it actually sits inside the chest. It sits right at the apex of the heart. It's Um, about the size of a small computer mouse. Yeah, I mean, it fits in the palm of a hand. They're really pretty small now compared with what they used to be. Can I have a feel of it? Yeah, of course. So this is 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 metal. What's it made of? It's metal and, and... Inside, there is basically looks like uh, the propeller on the back of a boat. And in the most modern VADs, that propeller is magnetically levitated. So there's no axle, there are no ball bearings, there is nothing that would create friction. So blood cells flow incredibly smoothly through the VAD. As I said, this is about the size of a, of a small mouse that you would use to use your computer with. It's got several portholes on it. One's, one's in, the, in the front face, one's in the one side of it. So is that where the blood goes in and goes out? The blood gets sucked into the VAD through a, a very short metal pipe and there's then a flexible pipe through which the blood is pumped along and that flexible pipe, it gets called the outflow graft, is attached to the aorta of the patient. And then the, the third essential thing is a power supply. So the VAD needs a constant power supply and there's an electrical power cable that is tunnelled along along the anterior abdominal wall and exits through the skin and then patients have a controller and battery packs they're attached to and so when they're connected to power they've got you know as much freedom 
as you or I. They can just go about their business. So it pulls blood out of the left ventricle, the main pumping chamber of the heart, and then shoves it into the aorta. So the heart can continue pumping as normal. It's just some of the stuff that it would pump is being taken off its shoulders, if you like, and, and put through this VAD device and into the main blood vessel instead. Exactly. And, and that's why they're called left ventricular assist devices. These don't take over the function of the heart completely, but they um, do a substantial proportion of the heavy lifting. But how much juice does this use? I mean, how, how energy hungry is this thing? Not particularly. So, I mean, they'll typically have a power consumption of sort of three or, or four watts. And the power supply, do, do people wear that or can that be implanted or how does that work? So at the moment, the power supply is outside. Uh, so a person has normally a, a waist belt that will have the controller for the VAD and then two batteries. But this is all fairly small as well. So, I mean, if a person had a, a jumper on or was wearing a coat, you wouldn't know that they were attached to all this. You need to be a little bit careful going through airports, though. <laughs> how much function can this make up for? I mean, how good are these in practice? So we typically see them pumping somewhere in the region of four to five, sometimes even six litres per minute of blood, which would match the cardiac output at rest. Indeed. I remember seeing on Star Trek, because Jean-Luc Picard, he actually had an artificial heart, and the heart that he had that was displayed once was bigger than that. (laughs) And so it's amazing to think, you know, here we are about 20 years after that programme was made, and and we're looking at a device that looks, A, very, very similar to that, but is smaller and, and clearly can do what they were saying was sci-fi yeah i mean there's some other sort of fascinating things about them so so early vads uh, used to generate pulsatile blood flow um, but people quickly realized that actually that was traumatic to the blood and and, and left patients at risk of things like uh, stroke so now vads are continuous in flow so once a patient has got one of these vads implanted um, the vast majority of them lose all pulsation um, so their pulses are so you have a pulseless patient in front of you yeah absolutely blood, <laughs> Blood, a bit disconcerting, isn't it? Continuously around the body, <laughs> and uh, actually measuring things like blood pressure becomes really challenging because yeah. because that normally relies on pulsatility. Given how good you say these are, do you think we're we're almost in an era then where actually when someone with a heart problem comes to see you in the future, you're not going to bother with heart transplants? You're going to give them something the next generation one of these. Well, that's a, a very, very interesting question. Um, certainly, the uh, the the most modern LVADs um, have outcomes, you know, two years post implant that are pretty much the same as outcomes after heart transplantation. Uh, but we've only been using these pumps for a couple of years, um, whereas we know what happens 10, 15, 20 years down the line following heart transplantation. So certainly their short and, and, and medium-term outcomes are, are getting to a point, actually, where they're almost as good as heart transplantation. Um, but in the long term at the moment, um, we, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty. I mean, it looks pretty basic. I'm sure the engineering in here is humongously expensive. How much does one of those cost? You're looking in the region of sort of eighty to ninety thousand pounds for the LVAD itself, and then there's all the sort of associated costs of, of of implanting them as well. These are not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. And to contrast that, how much does it cost to heart transplant somebody? Probably in the region of twenty to thirty thousand pounds for for a heart transplant and the and the first year of care that follows. But heart transplantation is at the moment cheaper than support with a left ventricular assist device. But given how common we think that you know heart disease, heart failure, and so on is going to be in the future, and given how few transplantable organs we have at the moment that we have access to it looks like these are definitely going to be a big part of whatever we do in the future these ventricular assist devices yeah absolutely i mean if you look at um if you look at sort of national statistics the number of left ventricular assist devices that are being implanted is just going up year on year for exactly that reason so i think these are going to be a big part of the future of advanced heart failure you're painting a very encouraging picture Stephen thank you very much for joining us to, to come and tell us about the technology that's Stephen Pettit he's from the Royal Papworth Hospital so we've talked about the skin the liver and the heart but what about when the brain gets damaged Kavita Bassi is a stroke survivor and has shared her story of life after stroke with us in 2015 when I was 38 years old I was taken into A&E with a life-threatening illness a subarachnoid brain hemorrhage prior to this I was leading a happy healthy lifestyle I just didn't expect that something like this would happen to me. The night it happened, I had come home from work a little earlier with a headache and watched some TV. 
And I woke up then approximately 11pm screaming with huge pain as if a sledgehammer had hit the back of my skull and I had a seizure then and collapsed. I was then treated at the Salford Royal Hospital Manchester with various operations over the next few weeks. My life now is adapting to this new me. I have trouble with short-term memory loss, severe headaches, difficulties with certain noises, claustrophobic, high anxiety and also a personality shift. I now have a very straightforward black and white thinking and this is difficult for people who know me to understand. Kavita Bassi, who recently published a book on her experiences called Room 23, Surviving a Brain Hemorrhage. Having a stroke can have a devastating effect on your life and recovery is especially difficult because the damaged areas of the brain are permanently dead. Or are they? I spoke to neurologist Tom Carmichael of the University of California, Los Angeles, about research he's pursuing to regrow brain tissue after a stroke. The key cell types in the brain, the neurons that send the signals, really are fixed after a certain age. In humans, somewhere between two and five years old, we don't get any more brain cells. And so we can't, as a result, regenerate new brain cells themselves in large quantities. And so when there is an area of dead brain, you can't regrow into that area normally from the brain next to it because the brain cells themselves, the neurons, are what we call in in the scientific field post-mitotic. They can't divide and form substantial quantities of new cells. Would you call this scarring then, these dead cells? Yes. What happens is the, the area dies and then some of these cells called glia proliferate and wall off the area of damage. And they participate, along with other cells, in the formation of a scar that helps contain the damage but may also have a second effect of limiting some of the repair and recovery. How would that reflect in sort of the treatments you can give people? Currently, as um, many will know, there there are no medical therapies for recovery and stroke. The treatment is activity-based, physical therapy, occupational therapy, or speech therapy. These are very limited in their efficacy. And so there are no therapies that stimulate recovery and stroke. And what we've been focusing on is the science of what the cells do after stroke and how we might develop medical therapies that enhance that recovery. Right, yeah. How, how is your lab investigating this? We're very interested in what the brain starts to do and then gets, and then gets stuck and doesn't progress fully. Um, so we've been investigating the molecules that stimulate brain cells to form new connections or the molecules that stimulate blood vessels to grow and and branch out in the tissue adjacent to stroke. And our reasoning is if we can understand those molecules, we might understand why they don't produce a more full recovery and then develop drugs that boost those molecular systems and, and boost recovery. How are you testing out the properties of these? The first test is just the discovery process to get an idea or a hypothesis on a specific molecular pathway or molecule that might have a role in recovery. So in the example I just cited, we might identify a molecular memory system and say, we think this might have a role in stroke. And so the first test is is a discovery test just to see in an animal model of stroke, like in a laboratory mouse, does this molecule enhance recovery? How have you put in the molecule to the mouse and, and what did you find? There's a couple of ways we've done that. Um, The most translationally relevant way is to deliver a drug that would interact with these systems, a candidate drug. We've partnered with pharmaceutical companies who have early-stage discoveries that we might test, and we've also developed some of our own. And you can deliver that systemically to a mouse just like you would to a human. There are other more specialized ways. Um, One exciting way is to develop new biomaterials that might enhance recovery and stroke. I mentioned that the stroke causes a cavity. That's a a space in the brain that we might fill with a biomaterial that could release a drug or that could have a, a molecule in it that promotes recovery. So delivery, just like we would in a human systemically, or local delivery using new technologies like biomaterials. Wow. So like you'd put a plaster on a wound on your skin, you sort of put the bioplaster inside the damaged part of the brain. Exactly. What happens then when you try this in mice? 
lots of times we have failure, and that should be expected. It's a discovery science, and, and if you're not making mistakes, you're not casting your net broadly enough. But in, many, in several instances, we've had really substantial success, and some of these have led to clinical trials, and some of these have really defined a new direction that we might then, in a sort of an iterative way, tune towards producing a human therapy. Right. And when you say success, do you mean parts of the brain that have died coming back online? That's a very good question. There's probably two ways I might answer that. The first is to directly answer it, and that is yes. We've developed what's called a biopolymer hydrogel, basically a jello-like material that's made of naturally occurring molecules in the body, and that can promote regeneration of new tissue after stroke. So in published accounts, we've shown that it can cause axons, which are the connections of neurons, and blood vessels to grow into the damaged cavity and form a new, essentially a new brain tissue that enhances recovery. And then a second answer to your question is, what does it look like when the tissue recovers? Growing new brain with a bioengineered material is really a heroic feat that took years of work. Another approach is to simply enhance recovery of the existing but partially damaged circuits next to the cavity. And so recovery there might look like a circuit that originally, say, was involved in moving the leg can now move the leg and the arm. Wow, that's amazing. Do you know how long before maybe you start to see human trials? There are various efforts that could go in five years into clinical trial. Sort of the roadmap is is well established for those. For others, it may take seven to ten years. And that's particularly true for the more experimental therapies because there are a number of daunting translational problems. For example, scaling up. Most of the processes that work in mice or in laboratory rats produce small quantities. And to get into a possible human application, you have to scale up in a, in a very pure way to a large quantity, and that's demanding. And so there's a lot of less interesting, uh, from a scientific perspective, problems that have to be solved to move many of these biomaterials efforts forward. Sounds very promising, though. That was Tom Carmichael from UCLA. So it's not just Doctor Who that can regenerate then. Thank you very much to our contributors this week who are Matthew Hardman, Martin Bowden, Mary Shell Hook, Sarah Miles, Stephen Pettit, Kavita Bassi and Tom Carmichael. And we've just got time left for question of the week. This time we're feeling the gravity of this question from Malcolm. After watching the Sony film Passengers and seeing what happens to the swimming pool after a loss of gravity... I'd like to know what happens to an air bubble inside a mass of water when there's no reference to where Upwards is. In the science fiction film Passengers, Jennifer Lawrence's character Aurora has a pretty unnerving experience. While she's swimming in the spaceship's swimming pool, the gravity cuts out and thousands of gallons of water rise up with her still trapped inside it. But what if, instead of an acclaimed actress, it was a bubble of air instead? The thing that makes this question so interesting is how difficult it is to wrap our heads around a lack of gravity. As Stuart Higgins, researcher at Imperial College London, points out. We're used to bubbles rising to the surface of a volume of water. On Earth, an air bubble at the bottom of a swimming pool experiences an upward buoyant force thanks to the fluid pressure of the water around it. This fluid pressure is caused by gravity pulling down on the water and depends on the height of all the other water above it. So the part of the bubble nearest the bottom of the pool experiences a greater force than the part nearer the top. This creates an unbalanced upward force. Air is less dense than water, so the gravitational force pulling the bubble down is less than the buoyant force pushing it up, and the bubble rises. In a weightless environment, where the effects of gravity aren't felt, there's no overall buoyant force to make the bubble rise to the surface. It just sits in the water. But is that the whole story? David Kinnahan, researcher in microfluidics from Dublin City University, had a little more to add about why this happens. There are two things to think about here. The gravity force acting on the water and the surface tension force acting on the water. Engineers figure out which is strongest by calculating a ratio called the bond number, and it isn't 007. So if gravity is zero, the bond number is zero. And surface tension, which is what makes water pull together into droplets on a windshield, is all that matters. Imagine the swimming pool room is left with a large volume of water floating freely in the middle of the room. 
Over time, with surface tension dominant, it will deform to minimize the surface energy and the shape with the smallest surface to volume ratio is a sphere. So you'll end up with a large spherical blob of water. If there was an air bubble within the spherical blob of water, it will also form a sphere in order to minimize its surface energy. So you'll end up with a sphere of air inside a sphere of water. So there you have it. Sorry to burst anyone's bubble. Next week, we're keeping things bubbly with this question from William. When a bar of soap gets used a lot and gets smaller, it seems to struggle to form suds properly. Is something other than just a smaller surface area going on? What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist, or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Eva Higginbotham, who put the programme together. And do be sure to join us at the same time next week for our Christmas special, which will give you counsel about how to survive Christmas. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.